sometimes serendipitous, hopefully that's the way you pronounce it. I have a degree in English, but sometimes I mess up my own language. Anyway, sometimes things that are quite serendipitous or fortunate or just a happy accident occur. And I locked this room at Adobe for a two-hour block because I had a cancellation a few weeks ago. So I was able to, you know, see if I could do two interviews back-to-back. I literally just did one interview uh, with Finn McKenty. And if you were listening last week, you heard it. If you weren't listening last week, you can go on iTunes podcast app, adobe.com, or Spotify and stream the episode after this interview, though. But you could stream it. It's there. And I had a last-minute cancellation. So I hit up Jamie Roberts, who is actually a guest on the show before. She's an incredible publicist, and she's just a nice person. And she got back to me within a minute with Colin Britton. And I was not expecting such an incredible guest in short amount of time, but I've been following Colin's work as a uh, producer and as a songwriter for quite some time. And what's crazy is I actually was just at the One OK Rock show at the Hollywood Palladium. And I really think that Taka, the lead singer, is on another level live than a lot of other bands from, I guess, the quote-unquote scene world. And that's just one of the many incredible bands on Colin's resume. So... I'm looking forward to talking to someone that I've heard a lot about because I work with producers and songwriters as well on the management side. So shout out to Jamie Roberts for the second time this interview for hooking this up. I think it's going to be awesome. Colin's actually doing a photo shoot as we speak, and then I'm going to get a notification that he's ready for this call. So I didn't get any prep time for this interview, but sometimes that means that the interview might even be better, you know? Just there are no strings attached, no nothing. So hopefully you guys will learn a lot from Colin. I know I'm going to be learning a lot from Colin. And you could tune into Waldman's Words every single Tuesday, 5 p.m. Pacific time, 8 p.m. Eastern time. In addition, rerunning bright and early Sunday mornings at 5 a.m. Pacific time, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Like I said before, you know, you can go on Spotify, iTunes podcast app, adobe.com. I'm stumbling. I need to drink a little bit more coffee. Mob B. And we're going to be with Colin B. So lots of bees here on Baldman's Birds. So obviously Colin didn't hear my extreme shout out slash gold medal. Wow, I don't even know how to speak English anymore. Gold medal trophy award to Ms. Jamie Roberts. But Colin and I just spoke for approximately 45 seconds doing a sound check. So Colin, you're the man. I appreciate you doing this. Of course. Thanks for having me on. I know. Like we both have prepped so much for this show, but it's going to be a been months. Months in the waiting. Yeah, no, seriously. I actually... (laughs) Every night from 3 a.m. to 4 a.m., I just read your Wikipedia page over and over. Sure. So it should have taken, you've been able to read it over, what, like 5,000 times? Because it's about two sentences long, I'm pretty sure. I'm not going to do the (laughs) math on it, but I'd say closer to infinity. Right. It's one word. One word. It's one word. Where are you right now? 
I'm driving on the 101 right now in Los Angeles, North Los Angeles. So well, I am just off the 134 or the 101 right now in North Hollywood doing this interview. That's so funny because I'm headed to that exact neighborhood. That's where my studio is. You know what? You have so, a lot in common with a lot of other people who record. The valley seems to be the hotbed. We could actually do this thing where we just you just tell me where you are, and I could, we can start the interview in two different places, and then I'll just come to you, and then at some point, unbeknownst to all the listeners, we can reconvene, and there'll be some magic noise, and then all of a sudden, we'll be in the same room. If there's a high five, I'm all for it. Right. Absolutely. Just high well, fives yeah, make everything better. No, no, my, my God. I mean, I... I mean, you, you can use this time just to kiss my ass the whole time, but I really yeah, want to. Sure. I really want to get to know you. And right. So, I'm you. You admitted that you weren't familiar with the show, which is kind of awesome. But basically, I get a lot of people who work behind the scenes in arts and entertainment. Mostly, I'd say people on the musician end. So, like a lot of writers and producers have been on the show, like you. But everyone's story is different. So. For sure. Did you grow up in Tennessee? I did. Um, I was born in, in North Florida, and my parents moved uh, pretty immediately after I was born to Tennessee. Um, and yeah, I was raised in East Tennessee, and uh, you know, my whole family is sort of scattered all throughout Tennessee, mostly focused around the Nashville area. But uh, you know, I went to school in like Knoxville, um, in eastern part of Tennessee, and so yeah, just a Tennessee homegrown. Do you know who I think of when I think of Tennessee? And it's actually funny. You actually said a word that reminded me of them. I'm very Johnny curious. Cash. No, but he's he's semi-famous. I'd say a band that's not one thousandth the size of Johnny Cash's prison. Okay, album. tell me. There's a lot of artists in Nashville. One, do one. Is it not Nashville? That's that's oh, it. Okay. It's Knoxville. Ooh, okay. Super drag. Yep. Okay, that's they're my favorite. I'm a '90s child, though. Me so. too. I was I was born in '81, and I you can quote me on this. I think the song "Unprepared" is the best song ever written by anyone. And, okay, and yeah, Super Jags top ten. He's a he's like kind of. I, I've only met him a few times at at very random events. It's always like you know. Jonathan Davis is playing like a, a cover show with, you know, Jonathan Davis and friends or whatever, but they will be just the most random eclectic group of musicians and everything. And so he's pretty talented. It's an interesting town. I mean, yeah. Knoxville is, is the, there's a UT there, correct? There is university of Tennessee. Um, it's, you know, for in all of its glory, it's, it's like a, a culture really is based around that the college there so especially the sports and everything which i'm not a sports guy i'm not but, uh, either I, w I went to university of michigan which is in ann arbor and everything revolves around the football team there but believe it or not i saw super drag perform at a bar in ann arbor once go figure really interesting really. i've yet to That's... lie to you colin i don't think I'm all right to on this show i hope you not. could be lying to me the whole time and this I isn't a show know. this is not being That's... recorded <laughs> this is actually yeah this is wouldn't that be funny actually uh, funny humor is subjective right i mean that would that would be like the biggest either waste of time or best episode of punked yet but for sure in me uh good good to know so you're growing up in that area and right. i'm you know i'm assuming we're around the same age you don't have to reveal your social security numbers, <laughs> yeah. i'm 32 oh, i was born 30. in uh, yeah i was born in at the end of 86 so okay um but yeah i grew up there um my dad was so my dad was actually um a physician, but he, um, he grew up 
playing music and bands and everything. And he actually put himself through school by playing drums in a, a country, like a alt country band. And so I just grew up with a, a lot of um, passion for music, like a lot of producers and musicians that I are currently are friends with. It, you know, a lot of times it's been around them for a long time. And so it's just, it was easy to pick up different instruments. There's always different instruments around the house. And, you know, my sister's a fantastic singer. She's actually signed to Warner Chapel in Nashville. She does writing in Nashville. And, um, you know, my brother was played in my band and we, um, was we signed this Ono with, Fiasco? Uh, yeah, it's been called Ono Fiasco, and he was with me for a long time. And, you know, so it's just always sort of been around um, the culture of my family. And, you know, bluegrass music is always playing. There's always just something, gospel music, there's always something happening. I mean, whether it's playing in church or, um, you know, playing in, like, local punk bands or whatever. So I really got a healthy dose of, like, everything. Polar opposite of mine. I actually, I moved to L.A. and... I joined a band called The Sea Drive, and we signed with Columbia, but no one in my house played music whatsoever. I mean, they were all definitely avid listeners, especially of The Who for my father and the folk stuff of the 60s for my mom, but you don't often hear that a drummer is paying for med school drumming. Like, that's badass. Right. I just want to tell you that. Yeah, he's an he's an interesting guy. I'm pretty sure he sold weed too. I don't know. That's don't right. listen to this. I've never dad. even heard he's of definitely that. Not listening to I've this. never even heard of marijuana. What is um, that? No, it's a new thing that they uh, invented in California to write songs with. To write songs with. Nice. And um, yep. And uh, apparently, it's been going pretty well. So, uh, but no, I you know he he was doing that. You know, he's from Mississippi, so he's an old uh, southern old southern boy, and you know he just. He's always just been kind of like split. I think my dad was, uh, was an interesting guy because he would like split his time between telling me that, you know, I needed to get a job and grow up like his dad told him, you know, from dad grew up in the Great Depression and was very <laughs> conscious of money and everything. And then my dad's also kind of a punk rock guy, too. So he's always was encouraging me to go out and take risks and, you know, um, and so I actually owe a lot to him. So, you know, he, he's a very persistent guy and he, you know, never nothing came easy to him he always had to work for everything and he really instilled that in me well that kind and, of sounds like both of my parents in one because my father was the guy who was working and paying the bills and he was all for me moving to la to pursue music after i got my english degree and my sure. mother was like i'm trying to think of the the most brutal way to say it and just make her sound heartless even though she's great uh she thought it was like a terrorist act pretty much for me to pursue music so oh sure i mean it's understandable though i guess no i get it from a parent's side and worrying about your kid as far as you know just paying bills and such i mean i was in a major label band and i struggled to pay my bills so for sure yeah that's one thing you do learn i kids remember this it's like major labels don't mean anything that just means that you're like in the arena now you can compete it but means you still that you have a bigger compete. bank You've got a bigger bank. Um, yeah, you got a bigger you. loan. You got to pay off. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean we were on Sony. So who do you think was a bigger priority, Beyonce or the City Drive? Well, that all depends on the market, and it all depends on yourself. I think that it's you know for me it's like nobody. I mean I've I've been so blessed to have now I've got a manager and you know Jamie's helping me and you know a team of people that work around me and I get to work every day with some great people, but they're not going to work harder than me for me. So it really has everything to do with yourself and like what you're going to put into it, you know? And I think that's 
how I've always felt about music. I've always felt about bands, and it's a lot of bands don't really think about that. They're just kind of like, well, cool, well, you know, all we need. They think the work well, stops when they sign. Oh, man, we got a record label now, so they're going to just help us get big, and it's just like a very strange, entitled sort of attitude. And I get it. You know, it's like you put a ton of work in for very little reward, and then, you know, you you need, like, those uh, rite of passages and those little watermarks to sort of get to and, um, you know, be able to check something off your list. All right, all right, got signed to a major label. And it's like, cool, what now? Yep. <laughs> well, you mean entitled people in the music industry? You're, you're like, saying stuff to me that's insane. I've never, <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't encountered a single one. But Yes, I'm writing a book, actually. Well, it's a book called <laughs> Stating the Obvious by Colin Britton. Right. No, but uh, right. I just want to tell you another cool thing, because this Wikipedia page that I've memorized and have since tattooed on my neck, you sure. were born exactly one year before my sister. She's December no 29th, 1987. Wow. Yep. Well, then uh, she's a Capricorn and she's probably manic, just like me. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that they changed the term to bipolar from manic, like manic depression. Right. But uh, no, Emily Waldman's perfect. Anyway, so growing up, uh, you know, people usually, but you, you might be an exception to this due to the fact that your father was a legit musician. People get into music sometimes through their family, but in middle school is kind of when people, I guess, discover things on their own or through right. their peers. What was your like Green Day, Nirvana, or Weezer? Because that was what it was for me in middle school. So when I was about, I guess, eleven or twelve, um, up until then, you know, ten or eleven, I can't remember exactly, but up until that age, I really was kind of listening to just what my parents would listen to, like a lot of kids. Um, my first thing was there was a high school band that was actually looking for a drummer and they saw me play at, you know, some church gig or something like that. And they were like, Oh, you know, you should be in our band. And you know, these, these were high school kids. So like, they were like gods to me. I was like, Oh my God, really? You want me to play in your band? I was 11 or 12. And they started sending me music. You know, he dropped by one day with like a, a CD, like a burn CD of all the songs that he wanted me to learn. And I literally never heard of these bands before. Like Nirvana was one. And remember, this was like, you know, the late 90s, like 98, 99, I can't remember, something like that. So Nirvana had been out for several years at this point, but I was just hearing about them. And so Nirvana was one. I, uh, Rage Against the Machine was probably the most impactful because I remember hearing like Bulls on Parade for the first time and just going, what the actual fuck is this? Mm -hmm. Like, what it sounded like no one. is this? It sounded like no one before it. It scared the shit out of me. Mm -hmm. I was just, I was like, dro like dropped. Actually, I turned it off, I'm pretty sure, the first time. I was like, I, can't, I don't know, what the, what the, what is this? Like, this sounds like noise. This is so angry and hateful. And second listen, oh my God, this is me. Like, I feel pissed off right now. Why am I pissed off? I'm like a, you know, privileged kid from... <laughs> from America, you know, like, why, why am I pissed off? But, you know, like, teenage angst starts to build when you're that age, and, like, that no was No one understands me, man. Nope. They sure don't. And I would give anything to just go back for one day to experience that again. And every time I put on a Rage record, I still kind of get little bits of that, you know, and that really shaped me um, because that turned me on to even older stuff. Like, you know, Rage Against the Machine was basically a derivative of Led Zeppelin, and so that turned into me studying, like, Zeppelin riffs and you know like I just got obsessed and of course like Blink-182 was coming out around the same time so like that was what all the kids were listening to and, and you know that's what my band was trying to cover and 
you know, so like it just kind of all evolved in the same, that year was pretty, uh, kind of a catalyst for me, you know, that around that age. So rage against the machine though, was probably the one. Well, that you're like, humans can do that. Like when, when for they sure. came out and what's crazy was my gateway drug to, I guess like the punk world was green day and offspring. And then I heard, you know, bad religion, no effects and Pennywise. And, you know, I could definitely argue that they're not as unique as Rage's, you know, rap rock hybrid. But when I heard those Epitaph bands, that's when all bets were off for me. And that's where I was like, nothing sounds like this. And then, believe it or not, since I'm a few years older than you, when ska and swing became mainstream, I was like, mm-hmm. you can have horns in a band and they're not Chicago? What? Right. And, and it's still aggressive and, there's, you know, people are still moshing. And I just remember hearing bad religion for the first time because like i was into offspring offspring was a huge deal for me um but i remember hearing bad religion for the first time and actually i was just fast forward you know 15 years or whatever i was just the other day was at um brett for i had a meeting with brett from epitaph who's you know plays with bad religion mm-hmm. and produces all their stuff and i walked in the room and i remember going probably like a fucking idiot i was just like Dude, I just want to say, like, regardless of this meeting, I just am absolutely obsessed with your band. And, like, you guys really changed my life. So thank you for that. Like, speed punk was not existent in my vocabulary until I heard Bad Religion. And, you know, just that fun, like, loose, just, like, kick down the doors, don't give a shit, you know. So Bad Religion kind of bridged me into, like, proper punk, you know, back to Black Flag and, you know, the Dead Kennedys and the Ramones even. So all of that came from me listening to Bad Religion, like a lot of people my age probably. So Were you you actually at the Epitaph offices? Because we've, on this show, we've had Chris Foytel, who's the head A&R at Epitaph. Yes, Chris is a a friend of mine, and actually that's who I was meeting, him and Brett. And uh, yeah, Chris is a rad A&R guy, by the way. He's like super talented, he's got really good taste, and he's really helped that company like grow. They're rebranding completely. I mean, for sure. Yeah, no, he's actually, I mean, this could be the Chris Foytel segment. You could listen to his show. It's a good episode. I've known him since pretty much I moved to LA in 03, but he's been at, you know, he was at Epic when I met him and then he went to Atlantic and then he left the major label world for fearless. And now he's at Epitaph. So he has quite a pedigree. We were talking about how, especially in rock music, you know, because the industry is so polarized right now with like, it's it's such a hip hop driven world and everything is just sort of derivative of hip hop and what's going on in the hip hop and pop world. And it's the number one most consumed music globally. It for sure. Rock and roll. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It is rock and roll right now. So it, and I think that's that's cool that things are going through waves. But I notice I know it's interesting to see the major labels kind of abandoning um rock and roll and rock roots and stuff so these smaller labels um you know like medium-sized labels like epitaph and a fearless and and um you know people 11 7 bands like or, uh, labels like that are really kind of driving the ship a lot right now with with rock music and you know there's some really great bands that are coming out um on the these smaller labels that are just absolutely killing it right now and really changing the game and making taste um for other bands in the same genre. And I think it's really cool because, you know, for a long time it was just like the majors and then everything else underneath it. And now I think that there's actually a real place for those, those kind of labels. 
I feel like you just made me come to like a come to Jesus type moment, but I feel like the indie labors, labels, well, labors too, but the indie labels in the rock world are kind of like major labels were when we were growing up. Absolutely, they're, they're the they are. Because they're the tastemaker for the rock For stuff. sure. I mean, granted, you yeah. know, there's bands like Bring Me the Horizon and Fever 333 and like Breaking Benjamin who are all on major labels, but... Sure, but Breaking not Benjamin's many. not even... as is they, They're not on Hollywood Records anymore. And... Um, as far as I know, or maybe they are. Actually, I don't want to speak speak too soon, but I I feel like that they may have left Hollywood. And if they haven't, you know, those are those are still kind of like from the mid two thousands. Like that's, you know, breaking bit the fever the fever three three three. I know is a newer band, but you know, still people are kind of associating rock music with the bands who are the biggest, but like pull the biggest amount of people to their shows. And the thing that's interesting to me is in hip-hop you could have somebody like juice world come out super quick and within a year you know they're playing like the main stage at coachella whereas in rock you really have to like build your career for a long time it takes a long it's more of like a long game it's more of a marathon and so some of the bands that's different crowds that like i mean the punk rock world uh wants the pay your dues type thing where sometimes the pop and hip-hop world it's like oh shit that came out of nowhere and that is a selling point Sure. And the major labels really still have a good I, – I like working with major labels. I guess it kind of depends on you know who the A&R person is really. Like uh, my good friend uh, Steve-O and Chris Martiniago, for example, uh, are over at Atlantic. And I think Steve-O is legendary. Um, signed Paramore, Shinedown, and we're working together right now on this band called A Day to Remember yep. that we're finishing up. And um, – Steve-O is just continues to just amaze me. I like his talent and being able to be an A&R person and, and know when to sort of step away and let the artist and producer kind of, you know, do their own thing and knows when he needs to get his friendly? Hands to... Do you mean being artist-friendly? <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. And uh, it's, but you know, like watching that, diff- I've, I've had indie labels be way more like hands-on and kind of like micromanage and doesn't turn out well. But then I've also had, you know, people like Chris Fortel who are just like know the balance and they just understand how to, you know, drive the ship. It's like steering a large ship, you know. And um, so I have like immense respect for people who are in this business still at that level um, who can still, you know, continue to make tastes and make really good records because it's really, really difficult to do that. I can only imagine from that side with, you know, so many different hands slapping you. Uh, for lack of a better word, from the agent side, the management side, the creative side, the producers, the engineers, and sure, yeah, the A and R is kind of the coxswain, right? Yeah, they're right. That you know, it's like I said, it's kind of like steering a boat. Somebody explained that to me. I can't remember who exactly, but it's no, like steering a, a large pirate. boat. Not a drunk pirate. <laughs> yeah, you know, you kind of like you don't, you can't just hit the brakes because like the momentum's already going. So you have to sort of see down the road a little bit or else you get yourself into some trouble. So, um, but you know, that's not my job. I try to do the best I can to like help the A&R person get what they need done. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm still an artist and I'm just, I'm an artist working for another artist is basically the way I kind of try to look at it. So you're the it's chef, their dude. project. You're the chef. That's the way you're, you're giving them the, the meals and it doesn't matter how good of a, you know, steak you have, if no one comes to the restaurant and eats it, it's going to be spoiled. But they got, the difference though is that that is true, but I also think that the chef is, it's not like I'm making art for myself 
then other people are going to then consume it, at least the in the way that I'm then, right? The sous chef. Like you, you I'm kinda... working for, well, it's like, you know, I'm working, you tell me what you want and I will make the best version of that, that I know how to do in the way that you, that you want it. And that's, I think that's maybe why I've been able to, you know, stay around in this business for as long as I have um, is because I can kind of get out of my own way a little bit. And some people have a hard time with that and it's say, well, no, it's my way. And then it's like, cool, well, we don't want to work with you then. Mm -hmm. So I try to work with artists that really know who they are and what they're doing. And that makes my job sometimes more difficult, but also it makes it at the end, I think way more, way easier because you can, kind of like if somebody has a really great vision and has some success and has a platform to get ideas out that just cut that just makes me be more focused on the little things that i need to be focused on to make sure that the song is right well you're you can sometimes be and then we're gonna take a short break because believe it or not segment one is done but sometimes you're like a therapist for so many things going on you want, <laughs> you want the best outcome possible i mean because i need a therapist that's why we're doing this we could do thought. that after after this show i could okay, refer perfect. you to mine but uh i'm an artist manager so i'm i'm essentially a therapist you definitely well. are a therapist and yeah, it, how does that make you feel colin anyway we're gonna take a short <laughs> break and we'll go into as much as you want to discuss about Ono oh fiasco and then we could talk about you know what you actually do and who you've worked with fun fact my assistant, Emily Burke, who's editing the show, luckily, she's not going to really have to, like, edit your controversial crazy shit out, but she's a huge Five Sauce fan. So she oh, cool. cool that you're doing this. So there you Fantastic. go. Fantastic. So shout out to Emily and Ashton Irwin, and shout out to you, and we'll be right back. All right. So I'm back with Colin right now who just told me that this was the greatest career accomplishment of his life. So thank you, Colin. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thanks for uh, enlightening me. I'm so happy that this is truly your greatest career accomplishment. Hashtag it really kidding. is. I uh, can die now. Well, uh, please don't. That would, that would suck. I mean, granted, that would like, make it, ratings yeah, would be guy better. Guy dies. But that's ratings what I was going to say. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a really fucked up sick way to think about this. But yes. Um, just saying. Yeah. No, hey, no, look, I mean, you got to get ahead in the world somehow. Well, I mean, it's funny because you talked about Nirvana earlier, and I had this conversation with someone, and I would love your take on it, and then we'll go into you, but had Kurt Cobain stayed alive, you know, after In Utero because the Unplugged record came out posthumously, I mm -hmm. don't think that their legacy and brand would be as strong as it is. I actually would agree with you on that, but I also think that there's, you know a degree of things that you wouldn't think about. Like there's a degree of the music that he would have put out that, what would that have done? So I don't know. I think that like the legacy of him, I think everyone, it's, it's hard to say, like, you know, you've well, built this house. To. It's impossible to, but it's yeah, just... you've built this house on what is, and then what could be, there's a million different parallel universes that could have happened in different ways. But I think to me, if I think if if he was alive, I think that, Obviously, Nirvana wouldn't have that sort of infamous like the Foo Fighters wouldn't probably exist. First of all, well, so would. there's that. But then you know, I think that there would have been a whole lot of great music that would would come out. And the same with like Sublime. I was and, just gonna say you know, Sublime because he died just before their biggest record came out, and they would right. always say like, "Oh, if we could have toured this record, it'd be even that much bigger." And you really, really never know. 
but you know the band that gets lambasted by everyone and I'm a huge fan of is Weezer and what they get shit on is that post Pinkerton people think that they haven't you know been up to snuff and Nirvana never had the chance to create something after in utero so it's right that is interesting and I I think that Weezer does get shit on about that stuff a lot but they've had like a really rad career and they've put out some great stuff I mean I don't care what people say like Beverly Hills is a smash oh I mean it's undeniable a smash and you know like I just think that and they've continued to write stuff so I don't know people like get off on their own shit and like their own opinion and you just gotta not listen to that stuff i'm sure rivers cuomo is definitely not like listening to what people say about his band although he's he pretty aware pinkerton. Of... he was with pinkerton though because pinkerton didn't sell well so then he did the green album which was intentionally devoid of emotion because he came up with some like crazy charts like some crazy yeah. math stuff that like I have a bachelor's in English, dude. Like, I don't know if I can handle that. But like, <laughs> okay. But you, yeah, you know, I mean, but Weezer, you know, the the record make believe that Beverly Hills is on. I like some of it, but I really think that you know the Green album's great. Well, actually, with the exception of the Black album, which admittedly I'm not into, their colored records are great. Like, I think their Red album's awesome, and White album was so underrated. So. I- the Green Album was like the first time that I actually really heard Weezer because I remember I was probably in middle school when that came out. And um, Hashpipe was the first major single off of that. And that riff to this day is just still just bad fucking ass, dude. Like that dun 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 yep. dun 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 dun. I absolutely love that record. It's and, a minor uh, scale. It's the first three notes of a minor scale. Yeah, dude. It that. That shit is, was on fire. I remember their uh, VMA performance or. Um, I can't even remember what they were playing. There was some award show performance where they had like the big fire W behind them, and it was just so sick. So I love Weezer Me a too, lot, man. and I, and I met him. I actually met him, ironically enough, at the same time. I was in Japan last year, and I meet. I met him after a Coldplay show. It was a weird thing. Him and Chris Martin were like hanging out together, and I I came up to <laughs> I came up to Rivers, and and I was just so nervous. And he's such a bizarre guy. Everybody who's met him probably would know this, but he's just such a bizarre super introverted guy and like he doesn't like shake hands or like even look at you because he's just kind of like has a phobia of people um but i was just like mumbling like a stupid little you know boy fan over here (laughs) trying to be like dude like you're so rad um and i just like that's how i'd get with billy joe armstrong i wouldn't know what to do sure you know and it was just even more awkward because he didn't know how to respond to it so it was just this whole (laughs) void of awkwardness (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, that's my that's my Weezer story. Well, that's a better Weezer story than mine because I interacted awkwardly watching them, and I highly doubt he'll remember fan number hundred thirty seven doing that. But you know, Hashpipe's just a fucking great song. And do you follow him on Instagram? Him specifically, not I, Weezer. I don't but. follow him, but it comes up in my feed sometimes, and his tweets are so fucking weird. They're the weirdest thing. <laughs> like it's it's pretty impressive actually some people are like he's going he's actually going insane i think i mean i think think it's i think it's by design like he he definitely you know embraced the fact that he's awkward and that's that's his brand and it's actually awesome because like he could use that to justify like not talking to fans whereas fans in the scene world you have to interact with fans like you do like a nut yeah yeah it's part of it's part of the whole thing i i think that um 
I think that they've they've sort of survived. You know, they've survived the transition into you know Cardi B, and they're still putting out records, even though it's co- like you know they're doing a cover record. They actually recorded that at the studio that I work at. Um, so I've no, I wasn't in the sessions, but I would see them you know coming in and out a lot. And so. I thought it was interesting they were doing a cover record and then the Toto song came out and I was just like, wow, okay. You and know, Toto they know what to do. Pipe, by the way. I don't know if yeah. you're aware of that. And also, like, I mean, by the time this airs, it'll be June, but they were just on the American Idol finale. Anyway, let's get to No Colin. I could have an entire show where we just talk about the fucking Green album. But yep, I want to hear about Ono oh Fiasco. <laughs> Ono oh Fiasco. I mean, that was my project that got us signed uh, with Alan Kovacs' company, 11.7. Um, back in 2012, uh, just the fast forwarded version. We signed with them 2012, made a record with my friend Kato Kandawala, um, shortly thereafter, that, by the way, Kato. Oh yeah. Well, you know, um, terribly, terribly tragic of Kato passed away last year from a motorcycle accident in North Hollywood. And, uh, but you know, we did a record with him. He taught me so much about making records and, uh, we toured on that record. We toured on the EP for, about a year and a half, and um, I just had some, you know, I don't know, I was kind of tired of, you know, living in a bandwagon or whatever, and uh, I, we, we started coming to L.A. a lot for, like, video shoots, and while I was here, I would be doing, you know, I'd do drum sessions um, with my buddy David Davis, who was working at East West Studios at the time, and I would do drum sessions, and I was doing, started to do writing sessions, and uh, I started working with this guy, Nick Long, who was in a band called Dark Waves and was producing some of his music. <clears throat> and he said, hey, my friend John Feldman is looking for uh, a new engineer producer to, to help him out. And I was, of course, being from like the 90s punk era, was just like super stoked to meet him. And so I sent him some of my music and he called me back like the next day and was just like, hey, do you want to come to L.A.? I've got this band called Five Seconds of Summer. Um that I'm working on and I had never heard of them because they were an unknown band at that time. And so I was like, sure, you know, I just wanted to work with Feldman. So I flew to LA, um, jumped in on the five seconds of summer stuff for about a week. And then I flew back to Tennessee and, uh, the guy, like I hit it off really well, um, with Ashton and, uh, with Callum and Luke and all that. And so they were like, they told, they basically told John, they're like, you should hire this guy. So John hired me and I worked with John for a little while. And then, um, he and I parted ways, and now five years later, here we are. Like Ron a, Waldman's words. That's right. That's Some right. Crazy shit. I mean, I just remember at the time when, well, in five seconds of summer, like first, I guess, hit some kind of mainstream or even just were released. I was teaching guitar to this girl who was a hardcore One D fan, and yep. she's like, "Oh, there's this band that's opening for One Direction." I'm like, a band? Okay. And I heard it, and I heard um, "Don't Stop," and I was like, yep. "Okay, this this kind of sounds to me like Good Charlotte, except with like a whole bunch of different dudes singing." And right now, look at them; they uh, they're really talented guys, and um, I, you know, they literally are. Because some people, you know, like to be like, "Oh, they're not a real band," blah blah blah. And I'm like, "No, they are a they're a real band. Like they all play." Um, they all write. Not they all write. They all sing. The phenomenal drummer, uh, phenomenal guitar players. Um, they're just really talented guys, and they deserve everything that they have. 
the same people who say that are the same people that talk shit on every new Weezer song. I mean, it's just there's people that just live to hate for stuff like that. Um, For sure. So I know you touched on this, and I just... I just wanted to say this because, like, I never met Cato, but I saw his name a million times. Um, yeah. What would you say was the most important, I guess, skill set you learned from him? And then uh, same with John Feldman. <clears throat> I'll start with Feldman because Cato is just a – for those who don't know Cato, um, pretty Re- the Pretty Reckless was his band. He, he founded and um, – he, he engineered the Paramore record, the one that everyone knows, <laughs> uh, Riot. And he's just, uh, Cato was, was my mentor. But John Feldman, I'd say, I learned from him probably like the speed at which really it's required to have good ideas. The speed and just, just about, you know, how to be comfortable with committing to an idea. Because um, when I came out here before, I just, I'd never really experienced, everything was a little more like, oh, yeah, you know, we can spend a week on a song. Like, Feldman doesn't do that. He's just in and out, boom, 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 boom. And it's kind of to the extreme. Um, I it's like uber to caffeinated, a- right? Super caffeinated, yeah. Um, you know, he's like that. He is basically exemplar- is like an exemplary uh, situation with, like, Dave Grohl's Fresh Pots bit. You know, you've heard that. Yes. He's like, that's Feldman, like, all the time. He's just you know he's just full speed um but you know he taught me how to really like focus in on ideas and and go after it and just get it done and you know it it really exposed a lot of weak points for me as a producer at that point um i was hiding behind time as an ingredient in my productions and time is something you just don't have all the time you know like it's just not something that everyone has. It's the luxury. So you have to be able to operate at a very high level, very fast, if you need to. And then time is a luxury, I guess. And so that's probably the biggest lesson that I learned with Feldman, I'd say. Um, Cato just taught me everything about everything, like all the basics, you know, all the basics I didn't know. Why an API console is better than an SSL console for tracking drums, you know, all the stuff that's kind of boring that I don't want to get into necessarily right here, but yeah, you know, but which compressors nitty, nitty, But that nitty gritty is what makes a good producer. It's what makes, it certainly makes an aware producer. And, um, and you know, or competent you know, is the word. I don't know. Well, like, you know, you know what I'm aware now because of that as to, you know, if I, if you combine the knowledge I learned from Cato and, and with John, John's all about speed and efficiency and feeling and Cato is about, you know, the art of actually crafting the sound. So if you combine those two things, now I know, or at least I feel like I know better as to, okay, what situations like, can I really dig in and get these sounds fully the way I want them? Or, you know, what situation is it just okay just to use what you have right there and just go like when, what's the ratio like, you know, what's the ratio of speed and quickness and just capturing that idea really quickly versus, you know, spending the time and really getting that perfect snare drum sound or, you know, so what, what is that? And that's really the art form of producing, right? It's just managing things and it's not really like glamorous. And I guess that's why it's more behind the scenes sort of job, but definitely like you have to know how to balance those things. And that's a really tough thing to know. Well, What's crazy is that, obviously, we spoke about this in the beginning, that this interview, you found out about it. You didn't even know what show you were doing before, and I found out that I was interviewing you shortly before I recorded the intro. 
but I knew your name through a bunch of other bands. And I'd say, I think it was uh, a month or two ago, I went to the Hollywood Palladium and I saw this band, One OK Rock. And oh, yes. And I don't, you might have even been at that show, but I can tell you that I've seen thousands of bands. That's not like a, a brag, it's like, it's true. And I don't know if there are too many bands I could say that had a front man like Taka who could sing. No, there certainly are. There certainly are not. And I'll tell you what, I had a similar experience uh, about four or five years ago. We went to Warp Tour up in Ventura. Actually went with John Feldman. And um, I remember watching with One OK Rock. We were sitting on top of their tour bus watching Linkin Park play because they were the. I remember they they built the the stage for them. They built built a special stage. Yeah. And I remember seeing that show and going and not to talk shit about anybody who's on warp tour because i've been on warp tour before i know what that's like but the level of like you could tell when lincoln park went on that they are used to playing arenas like headlining arenas you know and there's just a different like level of not even professionalism just like different level of just artists in general like they just were at a whole other level you know and stratosphere yeah and you could really tell because it was like going from the Warp Tour guys who were on the tour to Lincoln Park to yeah. back to the guys that were on the tour. And it was just like seeing that juxtaposition, that difference of like, wow, holy shit, these guys are fucking like, whether or not you like Lincoln Park, you, I mean, they were the best band there that day. And I think One OK Rock is like a, the, sort of the same thing. Like they're not that big here in the States. You know, I mean, they're a big band here. They play in the Palladium, but, you know, they're, they're not. They're an arena they're, they're, band they're, in Japan. They're, they are in a, they're a stadium band. And they're on top of the absolute fucking world over there. So there's a it's it is interesting seeing a band like that play in like smaller clubs because you know they're just they bring that giant room energy, you know these like we own the world energy to the smaller room, and you can really feel that. I've heard a lot of people say that, and I, I completely agree because you know I played with One OK Rock last time I went to Japan, um, and you know they had me come on stage for a couple of songs, and it was just like. You know, you're playing for 30,000 people. And it was just really strange seeing them transition and start to grow their business here. And, um, you know, because that's a, that's a thing that's really important to Taka. Is he, re- he loves Western music and Western culture, and I think that he really wants to be involved here. And so they're putting in the time. I mean, I bet in Japan he can't go anywhere. But, you know, around America, he, he, could, he can go to any restaurant and be fine. He can, and he does. He likes to eat. <laughs> Taka is actually one of my best friends. I think he and I really connected when we first met like five years ago, and, and we've been really super close ever since. And even though there's a started out as a little bit of a language barrier, he learned English. I didn't learn Japanese, but we stayed really close. And um, you know, it's it's that's a relationship I really uh, care deeply about. Well, that was the bullet point on your extensive and cool resume that I found. Really, really interesting. And believe it or not, we're almost done. But yeah. I, I just want to... So I can s- die now. You, I, mean, I mean, please don't <laughs> or do. But yeah. I guess if In you In the spirit want... of punk rock, I'm going to go die now. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Like, I, I, I'm not going to make any suicide jokes because I will get lumped. No, 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 no. You'll just no, die. No. Definitely You'll just die. not. You'll just die. Just die. Yeah. Just die out of pure satisfaction. Yeah, but, but, but dissatisfaction to Scott Waldman. Anyway, I'm talking about myself <laughs> in third person, which is really lame. Uh, can you tell the people listening, I guess, how they could check out what you're doing? Because, you know, you said so yourself. It's not 
the most glamorous world, but to me, it's super interesting, and you have worked with every character on the sun. So what? Um, yeah, what are your I'm still trying to look. I'm trying to. I'm still trying to to extend extend right now art, artistically. I'm I'm doing. A, I'm actually starting a new band with my friend Elijah Noel. Um, we I'm doing some like more passion projects right now. I like I said, uh, a day to remember. We're just wrapping their album up, which is phenomenal. So be looking out for that. Just Google my name. I don't know. That's it. One L and two T's. Colin Britton. So that's the best thing. I don't always post about who I'm working with at the time because you know I respect artist privacy and all that all that stuff. But I'm usually pretty stoked on the music that I work on. So there's always stuff coming out. Um, but Google is the best way, you know, or Instagram or whatever. We live in the 20th century. We do. 21st century. You'd be surprised. <laughs> Some people are pretty uh, difficult to find, but obviously I literally found out I was interviewing you, Googled you, and it was pretty basic for me to, to I see. Feel like, I feel like music and music production has been such a huge part of my life in such a positive way that I want to make sure that, not for my own self, because um, I don't give a, give a shit about how many Instagram followers I have, but I, I do like, if I can inspire some you know young kids or whoever, like even people who are older, like if I can inspire somebody to really like find their passion and to, to be able to express themselves away and get the kind of joy that I have out of music, then I want to do that. And that's why I try to be as like have as big of an imprint as I possibly can. So yeah, I'm all over the internet. <laughs> well, that's the purpose of the show. I, I actually just said this literally on the last episode that I recorded and I might've even said it to you, but if your story can inspire some kid to pick up pro tools or to write For songs sure. or to record, you know, in in Kentucky, which is not that far from Tennessee. Go no, it, it certainly isn't. And you know, also, I, I'm starting, I mean, this is too early to be talking about, but it's something that I'm going to be doing in the next year or two is um, starting up a nonprofit about trying to get um, kids, but particularly young girls, because I don't I think, I think women are just really super underrepresented in the music production world. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of female songwriters. There's just not a whole lot of female producers. And I feel like that's la like we're lacking, you know, like I just don't feel like there's a lot of fathers and mothers out there who are like giving their, their girls, their little girls drumsticks and or pro tools or something, you know, right now, I think more than now than ever, but I think that's a really important demographic to, um, to try to capture. So like, that's going to be my project in the next couple of years is like building that up and uh you know seeing where we get started so it's super preliminary i don't even have a name for it right now um but that's something to be looking out for change the glass ceiling trying to yeah i mean the thing the is the thing is is that the only way to do that is if there's a whole bunch of people like you who actively hire uh female interns or actively search for it and have yeah a i mean for it well i my friends tegan and sarah they they're doing this they're doing this thing. I've only worked with them once, and it was through All Time Low, actually. So, I mean, I'm I, not taking credit for absolutely anything that they've done. They're amazing. Um, but they are doing this thing now. I believe that they're working with only female producers on this next album, which I actually think is pretty rad. So, One of my know. clients actually worked with them back in the day, Hunter Hunter Bergen from the band AFI. Cool. I, yep, so, yep. But he's obviously know. not female, so that won't happen on this one. But Not it, on this one. You know what? I think that's a badass idea. I forget who it was. There was a movie made recently with an all-female crew behind the scenes. Um, right. I literally just read about this. I, I want to look this up on the air so that like <laughs> someone can learn something from this. But all-female crew movie. 
what happens when oh band-aid that was the movie yeah 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 sure i prefer that yeah so i mean i think that it's obviously like doing all female everything all the time is it seems like it's it's i want everybody to be included you know but i think that it's necessary to really draw the light on it now because it's really not i don't think it's it's even right now it's not an equal thing like this and it's not because people i don't think it's necessarily because it's like men are like trying to keep women out of stuff i think it's just been the norm for so long for certain industries no i i agree yeah. i mean obviously there's bad apples in every bunch and there's of course yeah tonight, but i but i think the general population is just it's just not you know it's just not talked about as much and it's not in certain industries it's just not like it's not what you know women grow up thinking to do and so i, I want to change that well you know what you fucking can dude you can do it so you can do it you can do it all night long so anyway thank you so very much mr colin this show airs every single tuesday at five o'clock pacific time which is currently the colin and scott time zone perfect o'clock eastern time which is my former time zone and when where you grew up in tennessee i'm assuming it was an hour behind new york right actually no i was ah. in just on i was just on the line so when i was growing up yeah i was wrong but nashville is an hour behind I nashville is an hour behind so yes. that would be seven damn right so seven o'clock nashville time if that's called like central time i believe so. central time damn right sure. and rerunning bright and early 5 a.m sunday pacific time 7 a.m central time 8 a.m. Eastern Time. You can go on adobe.com, stream every single episode, including Chris Voitel. Shout out to him again. You can also go on the podcast app on iTunes, subscribe for free, download for free, and of course, adobe.com, Spotify. Thank you so much, Colin. 